full service radio. Welcome to Windows Seat, broadcasted live on Full Service Radio. Uh, my name is Omari. I'm here with Chris. What's happening? We always got Jack back. Jack, what's up? I'm back. I'm back. No, That's we good. just got we Jack. just got Jack back. Always, yeah, yeah. Not always. Not recently. I'm here though. How y'all? No, no, no. We're Do not, it again. We're not just skipping over that, Jack. What have you been doing? I don't know um, <laughs> if you follow Jack on Instagram. I follow Jack on Instagram. Jack has been living. <laughs> I've been everywhere, man. Let's you, see. L.A., um, Seattle, up through the mountains, Montana, Wyoming, and all that. Yeah, I don't know. I've been, I've been moving. I've been moving around. Any, any place stuck out to you recently? Hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm like, okay, so it was like maybe the fourth or fifth time I've ever been to L.A., and I feel like I'm finally figuring that city out. It's a real hard city to figure out when you're an East Coast dude. Um, it's just so spread out. I was telling Omari before the show, it's like everything is so far away, and everybody kind of stays in their own little pocket in L.A. So somebody, you might have a friend there, and it's like, yeah, come see me DJ. Oh, where are you DJ? In Beverly Hills. And you look at the phone, you're like, that's a 45-minute drive? <laughs> Well, that's like going from here to Baltimore. That's crazy. So I'm finally wrapping my head around L.A. and did a lot of good interviews out there. So, so that was good. So the uh, brand is strong. Yes. The brand is strong. We're strengthening the brand. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, I feel like that's New York, though, what you just described. Every time I talk to New Yorkers, like if you're in Brooklyn and, and they're in Queens, they're like, ah, oh, don't worry about it. Nope, that is but true. there's no public transportation. I think the subway makes it feel shorter because you're just like, all right, I'll hop on the train, whatever. In L.A., you're just like, how am I going to, you know, the Uber's like $26. You're like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> uh, New York, you know, you can get from Brooklyn to the Bronx with two bucks. Well, now three, I guess. But, yeah. Anyway, more to come. You know, a lot of, lot of L.A. interviews coming soon. So That's awesome. And, things out. And, and we're happy to have you back. Um, I don't know. I, I think since we're inspiring you, they should definitely... Check out Jack because I was inspired. Like shit, like this Jack. Jack, what's your Jack Instagram? Jack is doing some cool shit. <laughs> At Jack Insley, J A C K I N S L E E. Oh, shout out to Boise, Idaho. I had fun in Boise, Idaho. I shout out to I Boise, would. Idaho. That you would only place. hear that here. Yeah, that, no, that, that was, was fun. I had fun in Boise. Out Boise. <laughs> what? I I don't know. Cameron came to mind. I feel like. I don't know. <laughs> is that weird that Cameron <laughs> might catch Cameron out in Boise? Yeah, I, yeah, I, don't I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that was a fun city. But yeah, yeah, ch- ch- check check it out. Follow me. You know, I try to keep the stories up to date. I have learned. I'll say this. I'm gonna fast forward to what you usually do at the end of the show. The tips for the youth. A lot of times, I'll feel sheepish about posting things because mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't want to be that dude. Like, I'm updating my story. I'm not that vain. Whatever, whatever. But so many opportunities in my life and jobs and um, relationships have come from putting the experiences out on Instagram because just like you said, you're like, I've been watching you on the gram. That's true for people in positions to hire you for stuff too. So I'll see, you know, people that again, like have the potential to get me work and they say, hey, you know, I've been seeing you traveling, blah, 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 blah. I would love to talk to you about this opportunity. So if you are out there in the world doing things and you feel sheepish about putting it online, know that it, it can lead to professional opportunities. That's my piece for the youth. 
Thank you, Jack. Welcome back, Jack. <laughs> Oddly enough, I think my Instagram real life would get me fire. I think it would do the exact opposite. But also, it depends on what line of work yeah, you're in. Be, be mindful of what you post. <laughs> Very dependent on what line of work you're in, yes. Um, we were provided this opportunity by the Adams Morgan Youth Leadership Academy. Oh, Myla. Yeah. And today we have a very, very, very special guest, Mr. Scott Cecil. <laughs> Scott is here from the Minority Cannabis Business Association, and uh, he's going to tell us all how to get rich. So we had Scott before. Um, we've had conversations with Scott before. Yeah. I think special doesn't do him any justice. I, he he kind of blew me away. Oh, yeah? You were yeah, impressed? I, I, yeah, I was Uh-oh. impressed. <laughs> <laughs> pressure, pressure, pressure. Scott knows how to handle himself. Yeah, so Scott's I'm a shark, dude. for this one. All right, tell us about uh, MCBA, Scott. Well, thanks for having me back, guys. It's good to see you again. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, yeah, let's jump right in. MCBA, what is it? Minority Cannabis Business Association. We are a nonprofit trade association. So we have... Uh, both individual and company members from all over the U.S. Uh, who join our, join our organization to help us further our mission. And our primary mission is to help people of color, poor people, and other marginalized communities participate in the legal cannabis industry. How? Great question. <laughs> um, so detailed. Well, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, where I've should been I practice? Start? Yeah, it's so. It's a difficult question to answer because obviously some places still have cannabis prohibition. Mm-hmm. So obviously there's not a legal market that you can participate in those places. Right. But in places where cannabis is legal, there are a lot of barriers to entry into the industry. As you as you might know, most yeah. notably, it costs a lot of money. Right. So most states that have come online, whether you're talking about Colorado, Alaska, Massachusetts, whatever it might be, you essentially have to have millions of dollars of capital or access to that in order to to get one of the licenses to start a business. So in some states that can be a cultivator license or a processor license or a retail license. And then in other states like Arizona, for example, you can you're all of all of three of those things. They're, they're not separate. But point being, it's very difficult to obtain those licenses. So what we try to help people do is find ways to start ancillary businesses. So businesses that are related to the cannabis industry, but don't necessarily touch the plant because you don't need a license for that. Right. So what do I mean by ancillary business? This could be consultants. This could be someone who is an accountant. This could be managers for a retail space. This could be security. You name it. So as this industry grows, there are going to be you know, ancillary jobs that, that exist in any industry that are going to be required for the cannabis industry as well. And so we try to help people gain access to those. And then finally, what we do is we try to match our members, our applicant pool, with businesses that are trying to hire from the communities we represent, whether it be people of color, formerly incarcerated, etc. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So you're the Minority Cannabis Business Association. Your focus is on minorities. You're thinking too hard today. Why? <laughs> Absolutely. You're, yes. Right. So why? Why? That is correct. Right. Why are you for why minorities though? Because anybody. I mean, you don't have to necessarily be a minority and still want to get into the industry. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, it seem it seems like an easy question, but the, the answer may not be obvious to everyone. Uh, the last time I saw numbers on this, the estimate is that about two percent of business owners are people of color in the legal cannabis space. So that's. That's not good enough. Uh, Why is that? Well, it's because 
you're less likely to have access to the capital that's required to get the business licenses. So like in, in Maryland, I live right outside of D.C. in Maryland. In the state where I live, last year they uh, awarded 15 licenses, five for cultivators, five for processors, and five for distributors. None of those of the, of the successful applicants were people of color. And so uh, my, it's worth mentioning that my background is in activism. That's kind of how I got into the cannabis space. And I certainly didn't spend years of my life working to legalize cannabis in, in various states simply so that people that are already wealthy and simply so that white people could make lots of money off of this industry. I want this to be inclusive uh, for everybody. I think the hard thing about this industry, right, um, if I wanted to be an actor or an actress, I could look up Natalie Portman, see where she went to school and say, okay, I got to do this because, you know, so many people in her arena are doing this. When it comes to cannabis, if I wanted to be a consultant, I don't know any other consultants. I know people who look the part because I know Mm -hmm. where I can buy weed from, but I don't know how much they know. You, you, You get what I'm saying? Because I think it's actionable, what realistically can a, a, a consultant make um, in this industry? I know the sky's on them and you can charge whatever you think you want, but what have you seen? Let me ask that. What have you seen? Well, to be really specific, mm-hmm. I, I'm a consultant, okay. right? So I work, I work for MCBA, but that's because I have a contract with them and they pay me to do their day-to-day operations. Right. So I have other clients that pay me money as well. So I'm an example of a consultant just by virtue of the fact that I work for MCBA, right? Okay. But what, before I answer your question directly, what you're hitting on, though, is something that doesn't get talked about a lot, including like the spaces that I, that I operate in, which is once there is, quote-unquote, a legal cannabis industry in a certain jurisdiction, so let's say D.C. D.C. may be a bad example mm-hmm. uh, because, as your listeners know, Cannabis is legal to grow in your own home and possess here, but there are no licensed businesses. We can get into why that is later if you want. But the point is, anywhere where cannabis is not legal, as you just indicated, there's, there is a black market, quote unquote, a black market, which already exists. So I, I mentioned one of the things that doesn't get talked about a lot is we need to find, we being us, community members, actors in this space, we need to find a way to integrate the existing, quote unquote, black market into the legal cannabis industry. If, if, you're, if you're a dispensary owner, for example, who better to be your bud tender or your patient consultant in your dispensary than somebody who already has patients or already has customers, knows what they want, knows how to sell the product, knows what it's supposed to cost, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the idea that we would ignore that group and simply, hey, we wish you the best. We're going to replace you with this legal industry over here that you can't participate in. We just want you to go do something else. Well, not only is that not fair from a certain viewpoint, I don't think it makes good business sense because you're, you're, you're not hiring from the applicant pool of people that already have the knowledge that you're looking for. Do, do we think, uh, I'm using air quotes, they're concerned with good business sense? No. I don't either. I, I, I think about the NFL, right? Mm-hmm. You have... I don't know what the sport is, 80% black. Mm-hmm. And when you start looking up the ranks, coaches, head coaches, it might be, you know, it, you just, the numbers start to dwindle, right? Mm-hmm. And there's all that experience. These guys know the sport. Why are they not transitioning into places where they can now teach the sport mm-hmm. or, or now look for other talent? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think no one's going to be concerned with that when we start looking at the cannabis industry. I know trap houses that are jumping in South Florida. I don't think any of those guys can get jobs. 
Well, it wouldn't be. So I think, Chris, one of the things that when you asked about uh, how much a consultant makes, the idea is that uh, people getting into minority or into the cannabis business are making a lot of money. And what you're describing is kind of like just going to get a job for somebody that works that owns a cannabis store or a dispensary or whatever. Am I going to make a lot of money or am I just going to be working for a, a company that's making a lot of money and I'm just an employee with a, a good title? Yeah, I mean, it, it, either one of those outcomes is I mean, it, it depends on what you want for yourself, right? The, the larger point, though, is money is being made. Well, who's making that money? The reason. So I, let me back up. I get the point that both of you are making, mm-hmm. but I think the solution to the barriers to entry is to educate the public and educate consumers about what they're purchasing and who they're purchasing it from. We may, we as individuals or me as an activist or whatever, we may not have the institutional power in the cannabis industry or, in, or the NFL or any other institution to like push for the equality that we want mm-hmm. other than the way that we spend our dollars. So for folks who are consuming cannabis, whether it's medicinally or just for personal use, you can make decisions about who you're purchasing from and make, you know, do your, your due diligence about who owns that business and following the money. Where's the money going that you're spending? So I think that in most markets, like, for example, here in D.C., there are um, f- at this point five medical cannabis dispensaries. There's about to be two more that are going to open up. Mm. One of those dispensaries here in D.C. is owned by a black woman that has more than 50 percent of the market. Even though when she first founded her business, she wasn't even able to get anyone to supply her with more than like a couple of strains. Because even though she has the credentials as a black woman, people just assumed that she wasn't going to be successful. That was a mistake. So for medical cannabis patients here in D.C., they can make a choice about which dispensary they want to purchase from. Mm -hmm. And therefore, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Same thing with Nike. Same thing with. uh, Exactly. Yeah. Chick-fil-A. So many businesses there. Yeah, it makes sense. I don't know. I know if I was in a position to do business with a black lady in D.C., I would have felt like she was probably going to be shut down. I don't, I don't like the way it sounds myself, but I know it's true. I would think, oh, no, you're not going to be successful. You're going to get shut down. Are these businesses at risk of being shut down generally due to the nature of, uh, of all this? Here in D.C., no. Uh, the, all of the medical marijuana dispensaries here are licensed under D.C.'s medical marijuana program. Uh, which has been actually expanding in recent years. As, as recently as 2014, there's only three of them. Like I said, there will, by 2019, there will be seven. Uh, but we, when you consider the fact that there are, what, six, six or 700,000 people living in D.C., that's not enough dispensaries. Uh, so hopefully we can up that number uh, at some point. So uh, is the industry in this area anyway moving towards um, selling marijuana in a not medical marijuana, but just people who want to enjoy marijuana for recreational mm-hmm. purposes. Or are they going in that direction? It's hard to say, but we can learn. History has an example for us. So D.C. actually passed medical cannabis something like 2004. Mm-hmm. And it took close to a decade for medical dispensaries to open here. And that's because any D.C. law that's passed at the city level has congressional review. Congress can decide to right. oversee over uh, can decide to you know exercise their constitutional authority for oversight. So they did that with the medical program for years and years and years until there was enough pressure built up that they had to relent. So similarly, for the last four years, there's one specific congressperson. His name's Andy Harris from the first district of Maryland, Eastern Shore of Chesapeake Bay, and 
he individually adds a rider to the appropriations bill, the budget, the national budget every year, saying that the jurisdiction of Washington, D.C. may not spend any money implementing our cannabis legalization law. And so therefore, the city council can't set up a regulatory body, can't issue business licenses. So the only thing that's preventing us from having a quote unquote adult use or recreational stores mm-hmm. is congressional interference. Do we know why he does that? Uh, oh. He's political reasons. I what mean, does he, he say? Or does he say anything? It, well, it kind of doesn't make sense because even in his district, there are a lot of people who support marijuana legalization. Um, I can't. It's hard for me to answer the question because I don't know for sure if he believes what he says. Mm-hmm. But just the the arguments that you would hear from anyone that's an opponent of this, which is it's a gateway drug, or this is going to lead to more use of other drugs, um, et cetera, et cetera. Think things that we know not to be true. Right. We're not just going to go over that things that we know not to be true. <laughs> well, I, before I continue. Mm-hmm. If, if we want to go down that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we've had parts of this conversation before, but it's, it's just too big for anybody that might be hearing it right now. Things that we know not to be true. It's such a big topic. It deserves that rigorous thought. Right. So what do you, yeah, what do you mean? Well, before I keep going, okay. I want to encourage listeners to go back to last season mm-hmm. and listen to the episode when you, when y'all had Betty Aldworth on, because she talked to you quite a bit about harm reduction and drug prohibition. Betty's a personal friend of mine. We used to work together. And, and she blew she my mind. Nailed it, right? Yeah. She blew my mind. Matter of fact, just so the listeners know, when 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 I first met these guys, mm-hmm. they were like, oh, we, we know Betty. She used to be your boss, right? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, yeah, man, she kicked our asses. Yeah. So I went back and listened to it. <laughs> She's very good at what she does, right? So I, I don't know if you want me to expand on, on any of that or just yeah. a, a little. Yeah. Well, you have to because <laughs> drug addiction, right? I can think of sex addiction, there's food addiction, there's a bunch of addictions. But that one in particular, when it takes hold and you're now dependent on a drug, it kind of steals your life. Like, it feels like it steals your life. And it's this great thing, right? If I break my legs, I want some drugs. But (laughs) there's the other side to that. So um, weed not being a gateway drug, I agree in parts, but I think it's depending on who you are. As a person, right? So what does that mean to you? It, you say, do you know it not to be true? It's not a gateway drug. Why do you say that? Yeah. So any argument that would say that it's a gateway drug is, mm-hmm. is going to be true about any other substance that, that anyone consumes, right? I could do a study right now to be like anyone who, I could look at anyone who is addicted to opiates, heroin, okay. right? And be like, well, 98% of those people used to drink milk. And so therefore milk was a gateway to heroin for them. Or uh, you know what I'm saying? Like that would be well, true. Who everyone is rolling their eyes now because no one, <laughs> no one's gonna be like, I agree. Milk is it? Yeah. And so, so I I see no difference between that and, and cannabis. Okay. Um. The the only difference. So let me back up. You you when you when you ask the question of me, you actually use two different words interchangeably that don't mean the same thing, which okay. was addiction and dependence. Okay. So someone can be you can be dependent on a substance without being addicted to it, right? There are, there are medical definitions to these terms. being addicted to something means that you have a physical need for it, a physical dependency, Mm -hmm. but you can, you can be using alcohol, cannabis, or cheeseburgers as some kind of an emotional crutch or psychological crutch, but not actually be physical, physically addicted to that thing. And I don't want to conflate the two things because people, people die because of their addictions frequently, not because they have a dependency on something. Um, 
and even if let's let's say that I'm so to play devil's advocate to myself, let's say that I'm wrong about all of that. Okay. Let's say that cannabis is a gateway drug, and that and that you shouldn't do it. Well, a, I found that that wasn't true for me, but my own personal experiences aside, I don't think that would be a good reason to make it illegal. Um, that's that's legislating morality, mm-hmm. and there's no way to enforce the prohibition of cannabis or any other substance. And so you're just you're creating a whole host of issues. Anyone who who's questioning whether or not cannabis should be legal, I would I would be willing to bet anyone out there five dollars that there's no argument for cannabis prohibition that's not also true of alcohol, yeah. which is obviously much more dangerous. We've already learned the lesson of what it means to put something into the black market and then take it back out. You would think that we would know that those same lessons translate to other substances as well. All right, so let's assume, uh, poor assumption, that our listeners go back and listen to the previous um, episode. They listened already. Well, yeah, yeah, but I'm, uh, I don't want to walk down that road. I, I just, is there anything that you're worried about um, as legalization starts to happen? That I was listening to a TED Talk where this guy was talking about, you know, we do um, organic food now and free-range food, and there's all these terms, and there's things that we have to learn to, to you know, to look at when it comes to cannabis because you can make this crop that has you know it's essentially all thc and it's not the same thing that is if it, if it was growing naturally is that something um that you worry about because I, I know you worry about uh, minorities and their ability to make money in this market anything else that we should be concerned with it's difficult to know how to answer because <laughs> I, I want to be truthful. Okay. The short answer is no, not really. Um, I use cannabis personally daily. Um, I'm a highly effective individual. I own my own business. I have my dream job. Uh, I get to do fun things. Um, I'm an effective person. I'm a good advocate, all of those things. For me, using cannabis hasn't been detrimental. Can it be detrimental to certain people? Yes, but I don't think that has, I don't think that has solely to do with the substance they are using. I don't know if that's a satisfying answer no, to you I, or not. I see your face and you're just kind of like, well. No, 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 because I agree. You know, when I see abuse in my family, they will tell you there's things that they're not dealing with outside of the addiction. And so they still exist, even when you act, ask them to take away that drug. That's the story I've heard. I don't know if there's any other thing. If you're just joining us, this is Window C. We should have did this a couple of moments ago. And we're talking to Scott Cecil um, from... Minority Cannabis Business Association. I'm sorry, y'all. I've been running all day. It's just one of them days. It won't stop for me. But um, me too, man. And it's just real quick, an anecdote. For, for those listening, wherever you're listening from, there's this absurd thing in D.C. where mm-hmm. like, so I had, to, I had to be on Capitol Hill briefly today. There's this absurd thing where like it's really hot out and mm-hmm. steamy. And, like, everyone is still wearing, like, business suits and stuff. And I just feel like they should all revolt and be like, none of us are happy. None of us look good. None of us smell good. We just need, we need different attire. And so I just, I just wanted to put that out into the public record real quick. I always thought if there was a politician that just said, fuck it, and, like, dressed the way they wanted to, they might do really well. Right? I'm, just, I'm wearing shorts. Yeah. They would definitely get the support of the people. Yeah. Just somebody in a fit. I don't know about shorts. They dress well, yes. but, you know, no suit. No, no suit. That guy is coming. Definitely. He's, he's coming. He's coming in the next 20 years. Somebody's going to be bold enough to rent too damn high or a party. Woman. Could yeah, be a woman. Yeah, or a woman. Yeah. Or a woman. Or woman. Yeah. Probably a woman, actually. Yeah. Um, there was a joke, and this, I guess, is kind of piggybacking off of what you said. A comedian made a joke. I thought it was funny. 
Uh, and he said uh, he was talking to somebody that smoked weed, and he was asked him why you smoke weed, and he was like, "Well, it enhances your personality." And the comedian was like, "Well, what if you're an asshole?" <laughs> and I think I know. I for me, when I smoke, I tend to get lazy, and so I stay away from it because if I want to do something, I tend to get lazy, and I don't want to. You know, I want. I got shit to do. So, what do you say for people who? Um, use that argument aside from yeah i know you just answered the question but they use the argument to say uh you're gonna introduce this to people who don't know how it's gonna affect them right kids or whatever are gonna start using it and then they start using it and it leads them down a bad road you know obviously you would say well you don't know what the outcome is going to be but although you're saying there's evidence to speak to the the other side there's a lot of um uh propaganda out there that would say that Marijuana is a bad thing. So how are you guys combating that? Well, I think the part of the prop, forgive me, part of the propaganda was just implied in your question, though, which is that if we legalize marijuana, more people are going to have access and like kids might have more access. I think it's the opposite. Um, We've seen whether it's in, you know, 30, 20, 10 years ago recently, when you ask minors, people under the age of 18, what is easier for them to obtain between like cigarettes alcohol or cannabis or other illegal substances they are there they always argue that alcohol and tobacco is harder for them to get well why is that it's because you can only get it from a licensed business that's required by the state to make sure that you have proper id and that you're of an age to get it um people who are who are selling any whatever substance it might be including cannabis in the black market aren't carding people right you can't grow alcohol or tobacco in your basement though can't you i can't (laughs) i don't know (laughs) for what I don't know. I'm just saying, don't people make liquor? I mean, yeah, you can make you can make yeah, moonshine but, or you can make yeah, beer. No, or whatever. but you know how hard that is. I mean, you get a couple of seeds and you got to plant in a month. Oh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no apology <laughs> necessary. I, I understand what you're saying, but you asked me about one of my fears before. So mm-hmm. since I brought up tobacco, I'm just going to make a little little rabbit trail off to the side here. One fear that I do have with cannabis is that we are going to see an industry that largely resembles the tobacco industry, which is where you have several large multinational companies mm-hmm. that dominate the industry and, um, and therefore dominate what, what the public has access to. I'm hoping that the model, very like, so this is my prediction, the model that we're going to see for cannabis is probably going to look a lot like alcohol, where you have a handful of manufacturers or suppliers that make like 90% of the product and that's what most people consume sporadically and then you have about 10% of the product that's produced by like smaller more craft producers which is what people that are daily users um, consume so like I don't know if you know this and with alcohol about 90% of all alcohol is consumed by 10% of the people that drink alcohol so like even throwing out anyone in our society who doesn't drink alcohol you just take all the alcohol drank 90% 90% of that is 10% of alcohol users. And that model is pretty much true, is very similar in cannabis as well. About 90% of the cannabis that's consumed is consumed by about 10% of the people in, in legal states. Really? Because most, most people don't use cannabis regularly. A lot of people have tried it or they just use it once in a while. Yeah. Or whatever. So, so again, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and tell you there are definitive facts. It definitely doesn't make you lazy. But there's no, there's no evidence to suggest that it does either. I would, I would encourage you to interrogate What's actually going on there when, when you think that, hey, I, I don't want to smoke this, this joint today because I really need to go write this paper. I need to go do this job interview and I'm worried I can't do it. I, I don't know, man. I want you to really unpack that. Well, no. So on a daily basis, it, you know, I'll probably do what I have to do. But I think in a long 
term I'll get I feel like I just want to sit here and watch TV or I just don't you know I get that feeling if I don't feel like it and personally I know I probably feel like that more often than not I don't feel like it but I you know willpower or whatever I just push myself to do it I think when I smoke I'm kind of like eh, I'll do it tomorrow see the interesting thing about being able to purchase your cannabis from a licensed business though is that theoretically you're going to have uh, a bud tender or, or a patient consultant who's knowledgeable about the yeah, strains yeah. is going to be able to give you That's anecdotal true. evidence and just right. feedback from other patients patients about like what the effects are going to be. Yeah. It's really hard to get that in the quote-unquote black right. market. And I'm That's not true. dissing the black market. I'm really not. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just, again, not to beleaguer the point, we have to find a way to integrate the quote-unquote black market into the legal marketplace or we're going we're gonna to have found ourselves to have set something up that's just not going to be equitable. Mr. Francis. Yeah. You have two boys. Yep. Would you be comfortable with them? Smoking getting, weed? No, 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 not smoking weed. Just oh. um, from an entrepreneurship mm-hmm. saying that they're interested in getting in uh, business of cannabis. Of course. I, I mean, a business is a business. I, to me, I would encourage anything that they want to do that. Uh, right now. Well, yeah, yeah. At this age, I so my my son's at seventeen, so I um, at this age, I just want them to explore and do uh, whatever they want to do, just to learn. Dude, what they're doing today may not be what they do for the rest of their life, but it may be. But the experience is is positive. And then I think, uh, as Scott was saying, as a consultant, for them to learn something at this age and then be able to call it, carry that knowledge, like they would, um, you know, I let's say if. Marijuana is legalized nationally, nationally, and the uh, age uh, to be able to purchase it legally is 18. They're at that age, so they will be able to connect with 18-year-olds better than a 35, 45, 55-year-old would. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, I would. I'm curious. How, Scott- and that's. I'm sorry, but how does that uh, your organization connect with younger people, or do they? That's a great question. This was also an issue that I faced when I was working at Students for Sensible Drug Policy, which we, SSDP, which you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Because most of our volunteers are like between the ages of, you know, college age, between like 18 and 21. It was, it's really difficult to be like, hey, we really want you to volunteer for this, this campaign in Florida or Massachusetts, whatever state they're in. But then they realize, oh, well, this is legalizing cannabis for people who are 21 and over. So the interesting thing is you have a lot of youth activists, a lot of youth energy behind these initiatives in various states, even though they know that they will not be able to legally purchase cannabis until they turn 21. So I just think it's interesting that that folks are still willing to push for those reforms. Right. Knowing that it may not personally benefit them right away. Okay. So what? Go ahead. No, I was curious what Scott would suggest to them because we don't know. We don't know. Right. Right. And Mm -hmm. to me, this seems a little bit kind of uh, like um, when the Internet was going on or when, you know, currency trading started to take off. The people that do know someone's going to make a billion dollars out of cryptocurrency. Yeah. Just (laughs) people that do know. So like your kids are at the perfect point in their lives to become like multimillionaires because this thing is going to start to change. But even then, I wouldn't know what to tell them to do. Right. There's. Scott, what are, where's what are most they, of the money going to be made? What do they do? Yeah. Where's most of the money be made? I mentioned tobacco before. Right. So I want to say two things about this. The, the first lesson we can learn is, and, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on this. I'm not. The tobacco industry has been around in, in this, on this continent since before the United States existed. Mm-hmm. So there's this, there's a, it's a very large power structure that's in place for that industry. 
the question we need to ask ourselves is like, where was cannabis coming from before legalization? Mm-hmm. Where is it coming from now and where will it be coming from afterwards? And being deliberate as consumers or as, as folks who are family and friends of consumers to help them make the right choices, what we think are the right choices about who they purchase it from. But cannabis, this is a, this is a known unknown. I think I can address all of the concerns that, that anyone would have about legalization of cannabis by, again, turning to tobacco. Um, so I know I'm kind of dodging your question a little bit, but th- I think this is important. Uh, around the time I was born, in the early 1980s, about 40% of, and this is USDA figures, about 40% of adults in the United States smoked cigarettes. In 2010, 30 years later, that number was 19%. So that means in one generation, we more, little more than cut in half the proportion of our adult population that was using cigarettes. We didn't arrest a single person. We didn't prohibit tobacco. What we did is we educated the public, including young people, about the potential hazards of that substance. Mm-hmm. And we held the companies that make that substance accountable for the public health risk, at least to some degree we did. So just to assuage concerns, if anyone out there is listening, we have a model for how to make sure that youth are not accessing a certain substance as much as they have in the past and to make sure that adults are using it responsibly. Alcohol, again, pr- provides a great model. Nobody had knew the word designated driver in 1980, right? Right. Now everyone knows that word. So similarly, I think there are, we're going to see th- lessons, emergent lessons about cannabis consumption are going to be there as we see the industry grow in the same way we have with some of those other substances. Okay, how do people get involved? Right. So, well, first Step of all, one. you can join the Minority Cannabis Business Association. Um, and, and I promise all the listeners, I didn't come here just to like try to sell you a membership, but I want to be clear that anyone can join MCBA, um, including white people. You don't have to be a minority. <laughs> um, all you have to do is, um, uh, and I say that as someone who's mixed race, you know, I have a white mother, mm-hmm. but I... All you have to do is support our mission of trying to ensure that there is equity in the cannabis industry. So please join MCBA. That's a step one. What we then do is we're trying to connect entrepreneurs, current business owners, and just other people that work in the activism space. I mean, we're bringing together elected officials, everything from congresswomen, congressmen, senators, mayors. We have governors that are in contact with us. But then we have business leaders as well. It's about bringing those people together and and essentially forming a sort of watchdog mentality around this industry and to try again try to answer your question we need to make sure we don't repeat the same mistakes in this industry that are that exist almost everywhere else in the economy which is like let's not conflate diversity and inclusion with equity right so i could come back on your podcast five years from now and be like yo i just want to report back that it have been really successful this is a very diverse industry and it's a very inclusive industry. There's a lot of people of color. There's a lot of women. They own businesses. That's not equity. So I just want to be clear that like our mission is equity in the cannabis industry space, not necessarily just diversity and inclusion. Equity means equity of ownership, means equity of profits. And right now, so far, as the cannabis industry has emerged, we don't have that. And so while I may not have all the answers on how to get there, what I can tell you is like we're the people that are trying to figure that out, that are asking those questions and, and hopefully in all the right places. And that TED Talk I was listening to earlier, um, the gentleman speaking, he was talking about places like, I don't know, it might have been Ohio, right? Or maybe I'm just thinking about uh, Jack. But uh, he said something along the lines of 
since uh, the laws have changed, so it was in Ohio, I think, that the incarceration rate um, have actually jumped for minorities, which is strange. Based on marijuana? Yeah, marijuana. So I don't know how the laws are constructed in such a way that you're still getting arrested for it. But he, he was saying they were down amongst white people and up even higher up for uh, Hispanics and blacks. Have you heard anything like that? Yeah. I've, so just a couple of statistics that I know. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that made me the most angry when I heard it was in Colorado, which, as, you, as people will know, Colorado and Washington were the first two states to legalize cannabis. So we have more data on, on what's happening there right. for a longer period of time than anywhere else. Arrests of black youth. We talked about it's yeah. not legal if you're under 21. Arrests right. of black youth have gone up in Colorado since legalization, even though overall cannabis-related arrests are way, 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 way down. And I would argue that's because we have an obsession with punishing blackness, and especially black youth, especially black men mm-hmm. in our society. And that doesn't start when they become adults. It starts, it starts at a very young age. And so, you know, as a trade association, I, MCBA can't fix the implicit racial bias that we have in our minds and our hearts and right. that we have in our, the criminal justice system. Another example of this here in Washington, D.C., as we've already stated, cannabis is legal to possess, legal to grow. Um, but you can get a ticket if you smoke in public. Did you guys know that? It's yeah. a $25 yes. ticket. Yeah. So the last time I saw data, over 90... Think about this. So for people who don't live here, and you guys will tell me if I'm wrong, I think something like maybe little under 50% of the population of D.C. is African-American. It's like 40-something. That was yesterday. Which is, which is the low, lowest it's <laughs> that been. That was yesterday. Um, it dropped it used to be a much It used to be a much, uh, much blacker city. But Absolutely. But it, still, less than half of the city is, is African-American. Uh-huh. 90% of the $25 tickets are for black men. So it's great that they're not getting arrested, but you know we have a very small segment of the population in one part of the city where almost all of the tickets are being issued. And there are some reasons for that. If you, if you don't own your home, for example, or you live with an elderly relative or you live with children or all of the above, you're much more likely to be consuming or even purchasing or selling your cannabis in a public space. Right. Whereas if you know you live in Tenley Town or whatever and, you're, and you, no matter what race you are, it's Tenley Town, you're white. Right. Um, you, know, you're, you probably own your home and you're, you're, you don't have to be in public when you're buying, selling, or consuming your marijuana. So there are a lot of just issues related to economics, to housing, to just whatever it might be that, that really still drive a lot of this inequality that we're seeing. 90% is a lot. But I mean, when I hear that, I ask myself, is there something culturally that we do? That well, I, know. I do think we smoke outside a little bit more yeah, than that's everybody exactly else. What I was going to say, I definitely see a lot more people walking around smoking or driving and smoking. Very frequently. Obviously, yeah. smoking. Like They're not trying to. I smell shit. it all the time. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> exactly. So, and if if they're arresting less people, the people that they would have arrested, they're probably ticketing, which would cause the number to go up as well, right? Yeah, but I mean, again, I, I wish I knew the numbers off the top of my head, but the disparity is actually greater now. Like the proportion of people who were African American that were getting arrested was still really, really high. It might mm-hmm. have been like eighty percent, right? But the proportion, you know, has gone up even, you know, yeah, at, yeah, I, under I, legalization. So. We still got a lot of work to do, man. Yo, yeah. Nigel's going to kill me, but I got a question I want to ask. Please. Um, Why is Nigel going to kill you? Oh, wait till the question comes. All right. Nigel, tell everybody who Nigel is real quick. Um, Nigel's just, he runs a mile. Okay. And we really want to inspire the youth, so the youth, you can turn away. Nigel, you got to come on our show, bro. Um, a responsible adult. Are there any drugs that they might, should consider? Because I, like, I watch... 
That, no, I watched, no, that's a terrible question. No, I watched, I, I watched Vice, and I, and I was like, um, I don't know. They, they sold me on mushrooms. I was like, yo, I got to do this mm-hmm, at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and weed, you know what I mean? <laughs> Stop looking at me. Try like weed? Because yeah. I can't believe you're asking this. Um, and, you know, I do, I'm going a, I'm to a add on to what you're saying, too. I don't know. And I meet rich people all the time in Miami who do coke. And they're mm-hmm. like, hey, you want to come do coke? And I'm like, nah, it's not my thing. Um, but should I change? Maybe is it is you know should I change my opinion on any of this stuff? Because we all, you know you just grow up and you hear drugs bad. Drugs so bad, what you're asking bad. is is there a drug that a person should try who hasn't tried any drugs? I don't know. Scott has a job too. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there just bad information out about that? Maybe I should just research. Let me ask that. Okay. Not try drugs. Should I research? Here's what I'll say. Here's what I will say. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of substances out there that what people know about them is probably wrong uh, I'll, I'll give a specific specific example that okay. i that i can that i can back up with with professional experience uh ex- ecstasy which is mdma right i wouldn't try mm-hmm. x is, is that because somebody told you when you were a teenager that it's like taking ice cream ice cream scoops out of your brain you guys know what i'm talking about that's what we were told they're like every time you do it it's like taking ice cream scoop no, of, out of your brain everything it's I gonna heard cause about, you brain damage no, it's toxic and never heard that so, that that would be a good one. Yeah, like I'm gonna tell my kids. Uh, that what I did hear mm-hmm. about X was that you never know what you're gonna get. So you yes, know, the the good ones yep. you're gonna have an amazing experience. And so if you get a bad batch, then you you fucked. I'm I'm willing to be honest with you about my my personal drug use. Okay. So I've used MDMA before, mm-hmm. and the point you just made, Omari, is actually very important. Make sure that you know what you're taking. That's so people out there, if you decide it, because guess what? When it's in a black, that's one of the reasons why having something in the black market makes it more dangerous because you don't know what you're getting because there's no regulation. You have no, every time that substance, no matter what it is, changes hands in the black market, it's another opportunity for it to be adulterated because whoever's passing it along to the next person in the supply chain has an, a financial incentive to adulterate it with something. So what most people are taking as quote unquote ecstasy is usually methamphetamine or methamphetamine mixed with MDMA. So what does MDMA stand for? Well, it stands for methyl dioxy methamphetamine. Okay. There's a reason the methamphetamine's in there. If you, so that's uh, what most people would call like crystal meth or just uh, meth. Which I want no part of because people look crazy. I mean, I don't want to say crazy, but they you, look terrible. On well, cr- the, yeah. If they're abusing it, right? Right. Here's the thing. Well, how do you know that? They're very, how do you know? How do you know? When you said you had a good experience mm-hmm. with yeah. MDMA. How do you know what you're taking? What Thank you're you. Taking. Thank you for bringing me back to that. <laughs> so there are chemical reagent testing, t- testing kits that you can get online for as little as $20 from organizations like Dance Safe or the Bunk Police, mm-hmm. where you take a little piece of the drug that you are about to ingest, and you're able to apply a chemical agent to it, and it'll turn colors, and you have a little key card that you can look at, and it'll tell you what substances are present. It's not going to tell you exactly how much of each kind, but it, I've, I mean, I've used these before. I've seen it work when you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to take this pill. Well, what is it? Well, I think it's MDMA. So I'm like, well, let me, ch- let me test it for you and I'll test it. And I'll be like, there's actually no MDMA here. You actually have methamphetamine or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, That's I, why I've never tried X, by the way. So I'm glad you said that. It's a very wise decision. If, if you can, I will admit like you're always risking not knowing what you're taking if you're taking something from the black market. So use chemical right. testing kits. So MDMA, why, why, why might I encourage people to try this particular drug? 
Um, check out maps.org. That's the Multidisciplinary yeah. Association for Psychedelic Studies. Mm-hmm. I used to be their intern on the first ever medical cannabis study to treat veterans with PTSD, veterans that have com- uh, PTSD from combat, like treatment-resistant PTSD. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that is still underway, but MAPS is in phase four clinical trials of using MDMA-assisted psychotherapy to treat PTSD. So the only way you can get into the study is if you are a veteran who has been in combat, who has PTSD, and you've already tried a bunch of other treatments and it hasn't worked for you. Uh, something like in, in the phase three trials, something like 90% of the study participants had no PTSD symptoms a year later after doing three, symp- three sessions of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So just so you, you just said no, like zero. they're done. Zero after a year. That's crazy. So, I believe this is how the drug was introduced into the market anyway, back in the 70s, maybe? Absolutely right. In Texas, I think? Absolutely it right. Like, it was yeah. used uh, in marriage counseling, in yeah. end-of-life end care for people wow. who are terminally ill. Um, it wasn't until like the late 1980s when the DEA, <laughs> DEA realized people were using this as a club drug. They were like, oh, we need to make this illegal. We can't yeah. let this spread. Um, just, so just real quick, this is how it works. The, the study subject goes into the room. They put a blindfold on. Mm-hmm. They're administered the study drug of either 70, 100, or 130 milligrams. They have different control groups, right? And except everybody gets at least one dose of the 130 to make sure they get the full effects. If, so like if you're the 70 milligram group, you get 70 and then 70. And on the third one, you get 130. Okay. Point is, there's two psychiatrists there, one man, one woman. They have reasons of why they do both genders. And they just have you go internally after you've taken the substance. And then when you're ready to talk to them, and I've seen videos of this, the guys will just flip the blindfold off and like just open up about everything that they've been going through. And so whatever it is about this substance, it allows for you once you've taken it to really unpack some of the emotional and psychological trauma that you've been ignoring. And so I said, final thing, uh, and then I'll let you ask another question. I'm sorry, guys. The reason, the reason I, I said I, I wanted to share a personal experience. So the first time I tried MDMA, admittedly, I did not have a chemical reagent testing kit, so I wasn't able to test what I was taking. And I also had been drinking alcohol and, and oh. had no plans to take it, but it was offered to me by a friend. I was like, sure, I'll, t- I'll try it out. You got to love friends. <laughs> what ended up happening is I came home with that friend at like 7 a.m. to his house, and his parents were already awake. Like It was like a Sunday morning. They're already awake. You know, they were out there, older people. Mm-hmm. And I, while I was still you know, intoxicated on alcohol, because I was still on the effects of the MDMA, I had like a four-hour-long conversation with them about the death of my sister who died in a tornado when I was a teenager and told them stuff I had never told anyone. And actually, for the first time in, in my life, actually confronted those feelings and really unpacked what was going on there. And I just I real I figured out quite by accident that this substance allowed for me to to find the the tools inside myself that were already there to heal from the trauma of her death that I had experienced. And so that's my firsthand story. But seeing that you don't take my word for it. Go to maps.org and look at the results that they're getting. And if you haven't heard it already, you heard it here first. By 2021 MDMA will be an FDA-approved prescription medication. So even though it may still be an illegal drug and people are using it recreationally, doctors will be able to prescribe this as a drug for PTSD and other things. You mentioned psilocybin. It's great for end-of-life care, people who are terminally ill and that sort of thing. What better way to connect with, an, with a terminally ill family member than to, for them to have access to this substance where they can really unpack all the emotions they're going through and find a way to connect with you, you know, before the end of their life. I just think these are really powerful drugs that 
um, are being kept away from the public very unfairly. Yeah, a personal story. I did try X one time. <laughs> oh, and, now you tell us. Yeah, the way that he <laughs> said it. No, well, the reason why I only did it once was because I got so fucking emotional and I started talking. I was almost crying and I was I couldn't stop. And I didn't try it again because I didn't want that shit to happen. I didn't know what was going on. And is the club really the place for that experience? Exactly. That's the, that's right. the funny thing, <laughs> right. man. So there, there's a club. I'm not going to say the name. The um, you can tell everybody's rolling in there though. It's weird. Flash. The bar is. Yeah, it's just like everybody's ordering water. I'm, no, I'm talking about one in Miami, and it's like, oh, oh, <laughs> it's like they party to like three the next day. Like yeah. the sun is out, and there's the lights. The lights are on. You can see everybody well. Like I don't. It was weird, but um, <laughs> I want to share one thing very quickly um, about psilocybin because I had a very similar experience with that in college, and and again, like. Man, if Nigel, if you don't like this, we can edit this part out later. But like, <laughs> sorry, Nigel, because <laughs> it's not meant to encourage you to do these things unsafely. But I mean, I read a lot about it before even touching it. Like, I read a lot about it, so you know exactly what you're getting into. And a lot of the issues I had, I, I overcame in that experience. It was very therapeutic. Like, divorce, family stuff. Pops left when I was like two or whatever, and it it helped me get over a lot of things. Like the next day, I made a lot of phone calls and was like hey you know i forgive you for this or whatever else and yeah i i do wish it was administered by therapists and it was regulated because i think it can be super super useful and scott you said it will be soon uh for mdma yes psilocybin i know that's being worked on too i know i'm a little bit less familiar with the studies happening behind that but if you look into the hefter institute is one that i know of um there are lots of clinical trials happening with psilocybin and lsd as well or quote-unquote acid as well yeah, I know a lot of doctors. Well, I don't say a lot. I know a couple of doctors that they choose to take acid. That's their drug, acid. So I'm- We should probably uh, encourage people to do some research, find out what companies are manufacturing this MDMA. Can I give another resource on that? Absolutely. In, in case anything I've said does pique someone's curiosity and they decide they're going to go try MDMA, um, please make sure you're using the chemical reagent testing kits to know what you're taking. But also, there's a great website called rollsafe.org that you can go to and they explain from top to bottom what MDMA is, what you can expect if you decide to take it and something that you were talking about. It's important when you're experiment if you decide to experiment with any substance, whether it be alcohol, mushrooms, LSD, whatever, that you're in the right set and setting. Yeah. That you're in the right mindset, that you're not stressed, that you're emotionally okay, and that you're in the right atmosphere for it. So like in the same way that MDMA can be a very useful tool for somebody who's getting psychotherapy for their PTSD, it can also be really great if you just want to dance all night and have a good time. The <laughs> setting of where you are is going to greatly impact how you're interacting with that substance and what you decide to do with your time while you're using it. All right, Scott, before we let you go, can you give us, uh, since we did say some things that might uh, upset Nigel, give us some, something, uh, some advice that you would give to youth who... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're making assumptions. It might not. No, right. But... <laughs> Yeah, some, some advice you would give to youth um, who are involved in drugs in any kind of way or use drugs in any kind no, of way. No, just youth. We're just going to stop right there. Youth? Any information you have to inspire you. Yeah. You don't want me to say anything about drug use? No, you can say whatever. <laughs> well, I, first I would say, as somebody who, who, for my profession for the last eight years, for the most part, has been working to end drug prohibition, I would still say especially for youth, you shouldn't be engaging in any drug use, whether it's alcohol, tobacco, or anything else. Um, your brain and your body are still developing. And I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and be like, hey, you should just do whatever you want. It's totally going to be fine. 
make sure that you're arming yourself with the proper information to make decisions that are right for you. But I would just flat out, even as somebody who's not a parent, if, if you're not an adult, um, I personally would encourage you to abstain from drug use. But I also realize that that's not going to be realistic for everyone. And all mo- more important than abstaining is to just make sure you're arming yourself with the right information to make the right decisions for yourself. In terms of just overall general inspirational things, so cliche, but like, honestly, just don't don't give up on whatever it is that you're dreaming about. Don't let people tell you that you can't accomplish something that you want to accomplish. Again, I know other people have said this to you a million times and said it better, but as somebody who's only a little older than youth age, I'm in my mid-30s, man, it really is true that you, if you are determined and you're willing to put in the hard work, you really can achieve whatever you want to achieve. And it took me a long time to figure that out, and I'm still learning but I have realized that, hey, like whatever you want, young ladies, young men, whatever it is you want out of life, you can go get that. And you can do it in a way that's wholesome, that's going to enrich your community, enrich your relationships with your friends and family. And uh, you can find happiness in this life uh, while making the world a better place. So go do that. Scott, how can we get in contact with you? Because I think you gave some just interesting and important stuff. If someone wanted to reach out to you. Yeah. Anyone who is interested in contacting me regarding mcba uh you can go to our website minoritycannabis.org if you click on the contact form that comes right to my inbox i'll see it right away you can also just email info at minoritycannabis.org if you're interested in talking to me about anything else you can find me on twitter or instagram uh, my name's scott cecil c-e-c-i-l is the last name not a lot of people with that last name so it'll be easy for you to find me I'm the very handsome guy with an afro and glasses <laughs> um so yeah feel free to send me a message on any of those platforms man i'll be happy to uh answer any questions or expand on anything we talked about today and i hope i answered the questions that you and gave you the information you guys wanted to hear i'm just really thankful that you brought me on thank you scott all right well that was episode of window seat broadcast Full service radio at the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Thank you for bearing with us. I know um, it wasn't the most crisp episode, but it was a lot of good information. The episode was perfect. Scott, you're amazing. It was very good. Thank you. Thank you. That was great. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Peace. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>